1: Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'll be one of my friends. I was trying to make some money. My job is just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. 12 weeks a year, just 12. You have to be on the top of your game, playing above your head and deeply focused. I'm talking about the three weeks each quarter where we get bombarded with earnings reports from a whole host of companies that report all at once. So why don't we get right to the game plan for next week? Because it is an important week. Monday We've got Martin Luther King Day, so the markets are closed. But Tuesday, we hear from Johnson Johnson and IBM. I think both will be battleground stocks. Well, j j is doing very well here with an incredibly strong pipeline. I and mean, stock hasn't recovered one iota since the big headline-grabbing story about how the company may have hid data that its baby powder allegedly contained asbestos. Now, we spoke to Alex Gorsky, the CEO, and I am confident that even if all the allocations are true, which I don't think they are, this issue shouldn't have destroyed tens of billions of dollars in market capitalization. Heck, even the guy who's suing J&J over this came on TV and said as much. Will Gorsky address it? I don't know. Please remember, though, when the numbers hit, that currency will be a huge negative. IBM's a battleground because people want to know whether this 5% yielder paid too much for Kramer-Fave Red Hat. I think it was a bold and brilliant acquisition. But what I want, I want to know if Jim Whitehurst, the CEO of Red Hat, tends to play a leadership role in the new combined company. That would be positive. Wednesday kicks off with Comcast, the parent company's network. We all hope that they'll give us some insight into the penny acquisition of Sky, the big British satellite TV company, which was announced back in October. I think the deal's terrific because Comcast has grown so large that the regulators frown on them making more acquisitions here in the U.S. The stock is flatlined though. Maybe this conference call can get it off the schneid. I can't wait for Procter & Gamble to report, too. Once again, there's currency risk, but management has laser-like focus on growing this company again, and I think they'll be successful this quarter. Remember that last quarter was the beginning of Procter's outperformance. I bet it continues. You want consistency? Then check out the stock of Abbott Labs, which is run by the incomparable Miles White. This man is money. And the company's medical devices, particularly its glucose monitoring device, a less expensive version of Kramer-fave Dexcoms, is selling very well. I bet Abbott tells a very compelling story. It's been, and I've owned it for my child's trust forever. I am a huge fan of Greg Hayes over at United Technologies. I like his plan to split the company into Otis elevators, climate control, and aerospace. I think the parts are worth much more than the whole. But like Dow DuPont, which has just been, whoa, not so hot, the breakup is hard to do. And we'll weigh on the stock until we get closer to the actual corporate divorce. Could be an opportunity. After the close Wednesday, we hear from two quality companies with stocks that have been crushed. Texas Instruments, TXEN, or also known as Texan on Wall Street, and LAM Research. Texas Instruments has, been, uh, has got a lot of business with Apple and, and might be hurt by the slowdown in cell phones. The far more interesting stock to me is LAM. It's the highest quality semiconductor equipment maker around. Its stock has been obliterated by the downturn in flash and memory prices. I think the quarter will be weak, and there's a new CEO. But with the stock down almost 100 points, I also think you can start buying Lam Research, betting that we're near a bottom, maybe not at it. Well, it won't happen all at once. You need to be ready to pick some up if the stock gets hit. That's right. I am actually saying that Lam, one of the worst performers is at a good level to start accumulating. Last week, when I was at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, I listened to Giovanni Cafforio. He's the CEO of Bristol Myers when he talked about his acquisition of Celgene. He made me a believer. When Bristol Myers reports on Thursday, I expect he'll talk about how additive this deal is for the company's earnings. You know what? I think that after Thursday, people are finally going to embrace this deal. We've got Dueling Railroad reports on Thursday, too. Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern. I think both will be strong. CSX reported a good number yesterday. It was actually initially panned. I expect the same to happen with these two. Union Pacific has a new oper- chief operating officer who's a disciple of the late Hunter Harrison, the man who turned around CSX. So I'd be a buyer to any dip. Almost every single CSX line item was good. And both Union Pacific and Norfolk Southern, I think, are stronger than CSX when it comes to freight. You know I've been a huge, huge fan of McCormick, the spice company, and I bet we'll hear some great things when they report, particularly from their Franks hot sauce division. If you ever see this label in the supermarket, snap it up. Let me know. Here's a wild one. Freeport Mick Moran, the copper and gold miner. This stock's been perky of late. My friend Stephanie Link was on uh, Halftime with me and she was talking to me about it. it. It's interesting because copper's been a real dog we got to find out what's going on here. I can't figure it out, but I sure like the way it trades, and you know I like gold. I wish Freeport had a better balance sheet, but the traders are all over that bad boy. I can't wait until after the close Thursday, because that's when Intel reports, and I wonder whether they'll announce a new CEO. We spoke to interim CEO Bob Swan last week when we were out in San Francisco, and he was a bullion about his business. Intel's one cheap stock. I'd buy it both before and after. I think the stock goes through 50 on any good news. How about Starbucks? Remember, this stock took off last time CEO Kevin Johnson spoke on the quarter. I feel he might have stolen some of his own thunder. So unless he's got some positive news up his sleeve about China, there may be nothing new to propel Starbucks higher. But if it falls to the the low 50s, I say, I mean to the 50s because it's in the low 60s, you might want to snap some up out of the quarter. Hey, listen, we've got a crazy market. You never know. I'm hearing too much chatter lately about how Western Digital might be concerned, so concerned about its balance sheet, that management may actually have to address the bountiful dividend currently yields more than 5%. Kind of surprising. Western Digital makes disk drives and flash memory chips, and they've been seeing pricing falling through the floor for the latter product. Look, I am troubled by any stock that sells for just five times next year's earnings estimates, which is to tell that the earnings estimates will not be made. So stay tuned. Finally, on Friday, we hear from Colgate and D.R. Horton, the big home builder. Both are very important at this moment. There's been a lot of noise being made right now that Colgate may actually be ready to have one of its story runs after years of underperformance. I don't know. It's not cheap at 20 times earnings. But if Procter can start doing well, and it has, then Colgate might be worth a look, too. It might be even worth a flyer. Chair Horton, the housing numbers have gotten grim in this country and the industry itself has been damaged by rising rates. But mortgage rates seem to have leveled off. We got a surge in applications this week. Uh, That should bow well for Horton. Let's see what they have to say. Still, I prefer Lennar and I like KB Home. Bottom line, if weren't enough to worry about the wall, the shutdown, the Chinese trade war, and Jay Powell, who I'm now labeling as Mercurial. Next week's earnings slate is going to drive you crazy. I can't recall a time when the forecast will be more important, certainly much more important than the results. So stay close. We've got some good ones that could pop, including Abbott Labs and McCormick and maybe Intel, especially if they get hit before they report. Let's go to Matt in Colorado. Matt! Booyah, Kramer! I like that. What's up? <laughs> Hey, Jim, I'm a big fan of the show. I mean, me and my friends, we always talk about you all the time. And listen, I'm a, college in, I'm a college student right now, and I'm a first-time investor in the market, and I just opened up my own portfolio a couple of weeks ago, and I'm just wondering, as a first-time investor like myself, should I invest, look into a mutual fund, or should I maybe experiment and look at individual stocks? And okay, pick we're going to be very say? clear on this. The first $10,000, I've been saying this forever, must be in index funds before you buy a mad money stock. You know what? It's funny. It's the late Jack, not funny. It's the late Jack Bogle insisted that this should be my view, and I never went against Jack. So first $10,000 index fund in honor of Jack, Vanguard. Irwin in New York. Irwin!
0: Yeah, hi, Jim. How are you? The oh, other okay. day we lost a giant... Jack Bogle, who was yes. the inventor of the index fund investing where large groups of people yep. would invest in large baskets of stock for long-term growth. My question to you is, in this day and age, do you feel that the Dow Jones Industrial Average of just 30 stocks is a true and accurate um, indicator of market sentiment overall? Oh,
1: great question, Roman. because I think it is a little out of I think that what matters is the S&P 500. But you know what? When you talk about the market, people still talk about the Dow, so I've given in. I, I'm tired of saying to people, you know what? That Dow doesn't matter. What you really should care about is the S&P. But you know what? Erwin, life's too short. People want to care about the Dow. I care about the Dow. All right, there we go. Okay, next week's going to have you going crazy. Forecast is key, even more than earnings results. And by the way, just so we're really clear, this day is not just Martin Luther King's birthday. It is actually the birthday of my executive producer, Regina Gilgan, who got dressed up to the occasion. Stick with Kramer.
0: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe.
1: How can you keep track of a confusing market? Let me give you some advice that rarely ever steered me wrong. There are two things I want you to watch. One, macro, big picture, and one, micro, company specific. Let's start with the big picture. If you want to know where the stock market might be headed, I say keep your eyes on the bonds! Look, I know the bond market is boring as all get-out, but it's much larger than the stock market. And more importantly, it's very important to the overall direction of stocks. Back in the day when I was running my old hedge fund, I'd always call in from the road the same way. If I had to be away from my desk, I'd begin every phone conversation by asking, where are the bonds? That's so how much it mattered to me on a day-to-day basis. Yet stock market investors seemingly forget the bond market all the time. They forgot in 2000, even though the bond market told us the economy was softening right t- near the dot-com peak. They forgot bonds in two- 2001, when it was clear that interest rates on cash were far too competitive versus stocks, and would this cause a massive sell-off? They forgot it when the Fed raised rates 17 times in lockstep fashion in the lead-up to the financial crisis, precipitating the worst downturn since the Great Depression. Over the past decade, there were countless uh, taper tantrums, what we call them, where some Fed official will strike a hawkish tone and everyone freaks out that rates are headed much higher too quickly. More recently, we've had a kind of a schizophrenic relationship with bonds. When the yield on the 10-year Treasury started breaking out above 3% in early 2018, everybody panicked. Yet when it pulled back, far too many investors will quick to forget about the bond market. Look, it should never come as a surprise that long-term interest rates are rising or falling. Bonds can punch your portfolio in the face if you aren't paying attention. A lot of people don't pay attention because, as I said, bonds are boring. That's why I say don't forget bonds. Always keep those bond prices and interest rates right in front of you. When I was coming up at Goldman Sachs, I was trained to focus on bonds because bonds are the true competition to stocks, the competition I most fear. When short-term interest rates, the ones set by the Fed, go sky high, you have to expect that dividend stocks, the stocks of companies with high yields like American Electric Power, Southern They'll sell off. When long-term interest rates rise, the one to watch is the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Then you have to start being wary that all stocks might suddenly be worth less than they were trading before. It's simple. If the bond market competition gets more attractive, the stock market gets less attractive. This is indeed a zero-sum game. Now, you should be especially worried about rising long-term rates that are caused by a pickup in inflation. (laughs) That's a toxic brew. Inflation eats away at the value of long dated assets like equities because their future earning streams will have less purchasing power. And higher interest rates don't just make bonds more attractive, they also make it more expensive for banks to lend. And that puts a damper on the economy. <laughs> For a long time, we had an ideal environment for stocks, low inflation and low interest rates. That's an incredibly benign backdrop, and I don't want it to lull you into a false sense of security about the dangers of a big spike in rates. That's why you have to watch the bond market. You know what? Let me put this another way. If this were basketball, I'd be saying that if you just watch the man with the ball, let's call him Citigroup, and you don't watch what the other team is doing on defense, the bonds, there's no way you're going to get to the basket. The man without the ball, the bond market, can determine the stock action every time. Many people who got in this game in the last decade still don't even know what bonds are. Yeah, that's how benign they've been. They're troubled trouble when you say that the bonds went up today. They think that means interest rates are going up, rather than what it really means, which is that interest rates are going down. If you don't understand how bonds work, you're going to be at a severe disadvantage when it comes to investing in stocks. So keep your eye on the ball and the bond. That's right, the bond then, without it. Okay, what else do you need to watch? On the Mac on the micro level, now micro meaning the company specific level, okay? You need to be very cautious when you see unexplained resignations by key executives. To put it bluntly, when the Chiefs resign, Maybe you should go, to. Yep. when you see a CEO step down for no discernible reason, you should uh, presume something is wrong and do some selling. Shoot first, ask questions later. I've sold stocks simply because the CEO or the CFO, the chief financial officer, resigned. And if uh, it turned out to have uh, jumped the gun, uh, if there was nothing wrong, I'd simply buy the stock back. But in my whole career, whole investing career, you know how many times I can recall that a CEO left for an undisclosed personal reason and a stock was still worth buying right there? Off the top of my head, once... Visa. I've racked my brain to come up with other examples. I just can't think of any other because that's how uncommon they are. Why? Simple. CEOs don't quit for personal reasons. Not if they want to keep their bonuses. CFOs don't quit for personal reasons either. These are fabulous jobs. You're paid a fortune. You don't get to be a chief executive officer by being devoted to your family. Well, you know. Nobody gets one of these jobs without giving up a great deal of what most people enjoy about life. Things like family, friends, nights out. Competition for these positions is so fierce that when you finally land one, You don't up and leave. Not for no real reason. When C-suite executives leave for undisclosed personal reasons, it's almost always because there's something wrong at the company. Hence my rule. When high-level people quit a company, something's wrong. Uh Aha, you say. I know a CEO who quit because he had an epiphany about climbing K2. Or I know a CFO who left because she wanted to spend more time with her family. Fine. Of course there are exceptions. At some point, somewhere... A CEO really will step down just to spend more time with his kids. But here's the thing. When you're investing in the stock market, it's not the exception that matters. It's the rule. There will always be some situations where it's a mistake to sell a stock when senior executives leave. I don't care because most of the time selling will be the right decision. This is the kind of rule that helped keep me in the game at my old hedge fund. It's all about helping you avoid losses. That's what matters. And one way you do that is by not taking unnecessary risks, like betting on companies where the CEO just resigned for undisclosed personal reasons. The bottom line, if you want to get a handle on the stock market, you need to watch what's going on with the bonds. That should be obvious at this point. But it's something people tend to forget. And when you're looking at individual companies, remember that unexplained high-level executive resignations equals sell. Giorgio in Illinois. Giorgio. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Thank you for all that you do. I truly appreciate it. Oh, thank you. My question is... What percentage of a portfolio should be in index funds and how in cash with the volatility of these future markets? Okay, well, a lot of that depends on your age. For instance, uh, by the way, index funds are fabulous because you don't have to do the work on individual stocks and they give you a great diversification. Uh, When you're a young age, you want to have 100% in stocks. As you get older, you want to take that money out and take the money out. I've got in uh, Get Rich Carefully and in um, really, literally all my books, I talk about the different stages. But as you get older, you got to raise some cash. That's the best way to put it. Let's go to Blake in Nebraska, please. Blake. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. With the current market volatility, what advice do you have for the young investors
0: out there compared to other older investors?
1: Write it out. Young people have their whole lives to make back the money that they might lose in the market. Older people, well, time gets shorter and you can't make it back. That's why you got to be a little more conservative. Okay, if you want to get a hit on the stock market, bonds the word. And please, when an executive steps down without an explanation, sell, 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 and stick with Kramer. Be a good investor. You need to be a realistic investor. There are far too many people in this game who are not realistic. Either they allow their emotions cloud their judgment or they allow themselves to be surprised by the inevitable. Let's start with the inevitable you'd think people would get comfortable with the idea that stocks can go down, right? After the dozens of corrections, meaningful pullbacks, we've had over the last 20 years, do you think we get used to the process? If people were reasonable, if we were a realistic species, you'd assume that we would say something like, hey, let's prepare for the inevitable correction because it could be right around the corner. Yet aside from the permanent bears, who think we're always due for a pullback, most people act like every correction is a total shocker. The type of thing it never happens. So every time the stock market goes down, there's a huge contingent of people who seem totally stunned. <laughs> Just caught by surprise. You know what? That's a bad attitude. To me the corrections, well, you know what they're like? They're like the rain. I know that rain's inevitable. So do you. I expect it to rain. I prepare for it. When the rain comes, I am ready, ski daddy. I got an umbrella or a coat or I stay indoors. That's how you need to approach the possibility of a pullback. Sooner or later, we're going to get one, As so best to keep some cash ready on the sidelines, just in case that time turns out to be now. That's what we do for Action Alerts, by charitable trust. Of course, plenty of corrections happen at allegedly unexpected times. In recent years, we've had a lot of major declines that were preceded by terrific up days, during which we made lots of money and everything looked peachy. In January of 2018, the stock market roared higher. People were acting like it had an unstoppable rally. But in February, the averages, they got obliterated. Obliterated. Why do I mention this? Because the time to be most worried about a looming correction is the moment when nobody else is concerned. That's when we get those brutal, supposedly unexpected declines, when everyone is euphoric. I used to have a rule with my old hedge fund. When I made 2% in a day on the upside, 2%, I knew it was t- I was too exposed. That's the word you use. I knew I was too long. I knew I had too much stock. I knew that my portfolio would kill me if we caught a storm. So as the market lifted, or if my performance was swinging too much to the upside, i pulled back, sometimes furiously selling sell, 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 sell. right into strength to prepare for the big down day that had to be right around the corner. Sometimes the correction never came, and I had to swallow my pride days later and buy back the stock that I sold. But when we did get hit with a major sell-off, my hedge fund outperformed by so much that my clients thought I was a genius. I wasn't a genius. It wasn't genius at all. It was discipline. It was preparation. Plus, because I'd taken something off the table in order to raise cash, I'd be able to use that money to buy all sorts of high-quality stocks into the weakness that I so often preach to you. Look, we may not be able to predict when a storm is going to strike, but we do have barometric readings that can be helpful. Immensely helpful. Yep. if corrections are like rain, then where should you get your weather report? You know what? I pay for something. That's right. I like to follow the proprietary standard and oscillator. It's a terrific indicator that tells us when the market is getting overbought or oversold. Whenever this oscillator registers plus five or above, that tells me we've come up too far too fast, to the point where it's gotten dangerous. So to me, a plus five reading means you need to pull back aggressively and wait for a correction. What do I mean by pullback aggressively? If you're nimble, admittedly a big if, you might want to ring the register on about half of your portfolio. Yeah, that's right. Not half the stocks, but half the shares in each position. That way you'll have a ton of cash on the sidelines that you can use to buy back your favorite stocks at lower levels when the storm hits. Even if you're not at all nimble, you should be selling something to raise some cash when that oscillator, again, that I bought from the uh, S&P company, hits plus 5. And look, I understand, maybe you just want to take a little off, but people who are aggressive want to take a lot off, because that doesn't happen very often. By the same token, when the oscillator hits minus 5, it means the market is incredibly oversold. In that situation, we've usually come down so far so fast that we're due for at least a short-term bounce. It's worked like that for years. That's a good place to put your cash to work if you haven't already, by that point, it's the life cycle of a sell-off. Worst case scenario, there's no storm. Stocks go higher and you underperform the averages because you have such a large cash position. I'll admit that's a real risk. But look at it this way. Using this methodology at my hedge fund, I gave my investors a compound 24% return after all fees. That was more than twice what the S&P 500 would have given them over the same period. As I see it, That's pretty strong evidence that avoiding losses on big down days more than makes up for the possibility of missing some partial gains on the big up days. Now, let's talk about the other component of realistic investing. Yes, you need to accept that meaningful sell-offs are inevitable, like bad weather. But you also need to stop yourself from making investment decisions based on misleading emotions. And the worst of those emotions is hope. Hope. Whenever I hear the word hope as uh, in I hope that Doom stock du jour will come back to where I bought it so I can sell it without taking a loss, I get furious. Always remember that hope is not part of the equation. Repeat after me. Hope is not part of the equation. Don't hope for anything. Hope is emotion, pure and simple. And this is not a game of emotion, or at least not your emotions. Every stock you own because you hope it goes higher is another position in your portfolio that's not being filled by a stock you believe will go higher. Yet I hear hope constantly. That's fine if we're talking about religion or sports. You know the coaches of some of these come-from-behind NCAA men's basketball teams keep their players motivated through hope. But in the stock business, hope, it's a mistake. Why? Because it's the plant's reason, especially when we're talking about stocks that trade in the single digits. You tell yourself, hey, I bought this at $5, now it's at $4. I hope it goes back to $5, then I'll sell. How hard could it be to go from $4 to $5, right? Wrong! No company ever sets out to have a single-digit stock. Most companies will fight tooth and nail to keep their stocks from going into single-digit territory. So when you find something that sells for just a few bucks, the market has already rendered a harsh judgment. When you let hope become part of the equation, you can end up holding these low-quality pieces of paper, waiting for something that will likely never happen. Forget hoping. Forget waiting for higher prices. I say the thing to do is to cut your losses and move on to a stock you can actually see, can see going higher. In other words, a stock that you have done the work and believe will go higher. And it's not because of hope, but because of reason. The bottom line. It pays to be realistic in this business, so prepare yourself for corrections. Big pullbacks are like, great, they're inevitable. And whatever you do, don't make stock-picking decisions based on hope. You need to invest in the real world, not in a fantasy land created by your own hopes and dreams. Let's go to Dick in Virginia. Dick! Hi, Jim. I love your show. I listen, learn, and profit from your advice. Thank you. And, my gen- and I have a general question about retirees and the stock market. I'm now 72 years old, retired, and wondered, even though I am well diversified in most of your favorite stocks, I cannot risk a large market correction. I might not have enough time to recover. The stock market is the best vehicle for wealth building. Should I consider de-risking my portfolio by adding bonds or bonds equivalents, in it, even though we're in a, a rising interest rate environment? or get rich carefully by being well diversified with stocks I think at, at 73 uh, I think you don't have many many years but I think you should uh, uh, raise some cash uh, I wouldn't even I would say even I'm not sure about your work status but someone 73 to have 25 30 percent cash cause remember I believe that we are going to lead much longer lives than most people think uh, 25 thirty percent would be fine in short-term cash okay because rates are going higher and then we'll deal with it. Let's go to Pat in Colorado. Please, Pat!
0: Hi, Jim. This is Pat from beautiful, beautiful Colorado. My question is this. I owe $189,000 on my mortgage. I'm concerned about a severe market correction.
1: Sometime back, you said they usually happen about once every 10 years. I have enough money in my mutual funds and accounts to pay it off now, but... Should I face the tax ramifications of adding $189,000 to my income next January? Thanks. Um, Tax things, I usually say you got to speak to your uh, tax accountant to be able to be sure. Um, I do think that you're, look, that's, um, let's put it this way. I think that that each to each his own on that particular kind of thing. But I will say that we've had corrections more frequently than 10 years. And that's really the issue. I do expect them a lot more frequently these days because they've got a much more volatile market that's been up a lot over multiple years time. All right, let's be real. It pays to be real. Realistic, that is. Money is back after the break. You don't need me to tell you that the Internet has been kind of a double-edged sword that's true in every area of life, including investing. Sure, the web makes everything more convenient. You have all sorts of information available at the push of a button, something that was unimaginable when I got started in this business. It was much harder to do the homework in the old days. It took real effort. These days, everything is searchable. But for all of the ways in which the Internet makes the process easier, it also creates new problems. And when we have new problems, we need new rules to help contain them. For example... You absolutely have to be able to explain your stock picks to another human being. If you can't do that, you have no business buying the stock in question. Here's the thing. In the old days, this rarely came up. But the rise of the Internet took away one of the most important breaks on the process, one of the most important warning systems, which is talking to another person about what you want to buy. It used to be that you had to talk to a broker. Now, with the stroke of a key, you can buy, the, let's say, a uh, stock of Workday or a Square without ever having to tell another person why you're doing so. Why is that an issue? Why do you need to explain this stuff to someone else, anyone else? It doesn't have to be professional, by the way. It could be anybody, preferably an adult, but you can fall back on explaining it to your kids if you have to. Buying stocks is a solitary event, too solitary, but we're all prone to making mistakes, sometimes big ones. To err is human. If you want to cut down on these mistakes, you should force yourself to articulate to someone else, not just yourself, why you like a stock. Do you know how they make their money? Do you know how their earnings are supposed to look? If you don't, then you're setting yourself up for trouble. I always see this problem particularly in biotech, including many of the questions, uh, you know, lightning round that people ask about it. So many people own biotech stocks without even having the vaguest understanding of what the underlying companies do or how they could possibly turn a profit. I urge you to be able to articulate a thesis for owning every stock in your portfolio to someone, anyone. Think of it as a test to make sure you've actually done the homework. That way, if the stock gets slammed, you'll know whether to cut and run or buy more. If you don't actually know what you're, you own, believe me, you're going to get slaughtered on the next decline. And there's always a next decline. When I was at my hedge fund, I always made my employees sell me the stock, literally sell it to me like a salesperson for I would buy it. If you're in a position where you're picking stocks yourself, get someone to listen to you and let you articulate your reasoning. That's what's so important. I also like to ask uh, people, what's going to make this dog go up? What's the catalyst? Or have we missed the move in this overvalued stock that's up 100% already this year? You know, I get a lot of those questions, too. And, of course, what's your edge? These are all important questions. If you can't answer them, you shouldn't be buying. And, look, the ability to make hasty decisions is not the only thing you need to be wary of on the web. There's something else you need to be aware of. The Internet Has vastly increased the power of the Wall Street promotion machine. Now, I've long believed that home gamers and professionals alike simply don't have enough respect for this this promotion machine. I, on the other hand, recognize that when Wall Street falls in love with a stock, it will go much further than anyone expects in its efforts to hype that stock to high heaven. Consider the case of Valiant, okay? which uh, it's changing its name, but Valiant, the big pharmaceutical roll-up that was one of the most heavily promoted stocks of the last decade. Its shares soared to the $200, and actually, and then some, on acquisition after acquisition as analysts routinely raised numbers. Why? Because management would slash costs and raise prices. But when the political environment changed, the analysts turned on Valiant and the numbers fell apart. Plus, to make matters worse, it turned out that the company had embraced a bunch of shady practices to bolster its results. Within a few months, the darn thing had plunged from the mid-200s to the mid-20s. It took Valiant almost two years to bottom. And before then, it fell all the way to the single digits. And on the way back, it became uh, Balsh Health. Whatever, changed the name too. The thing is, Valiant should never have been trading above $200 in the first place. The only reason the stock had reached those levels to begin with, considering the endless pyramiding of new companies on old, was because the analyst promotion machine was so darn powerful and the web amplifies the reach. So anytime you see nearly unanimous bullishness from the analyst community on, pract- on potentially dubious merchandise, I think you've got to beware. You should beware. In the words of Public Enemy, please don't believe the hype. One last thing, and this is really true of all media, both online and offline. Whether you're watching TV or a webcast, it pays to be a critic. Yep, it may sound crazy for the host of a cable TV show to make this argument, but you can't believe everything you hear on television. Lots of times executives say whatever they want on air, knowing they can get away with it. Lots of times fund managers come on air and tout their holdings, and sure, they have to disclose when they own something, but they rarely tell you whether they're in it for the long term or the short term, and boy, does that ever make a big difference. You need to accept this as a given. My general approach is that when you hear on TV, probably right. But no more than that. Same goes for the web, except you have to be a lot more careful because there's a ton of junk information, and uninformed commentary online. That's just the world we live in. So repeat after me, just because someone says it on TV doesn't mean it's true. I hate to say it, but you're being naive if you simply believe everything you hear. That's one reason why we only bring high-level executives on demand money, they can still mislead you. But if the CEO of a public company outright lies about how their business is doing, let's just say their legal bills will really start that up. But generally speaking, you see a lot of money managers coming on television for a variety of legitimate reasons. These guys aren't always well-vetted. And often managers can't help themselves when it comes to being promotional. So here's a good rule of thumb: If a money manager is on TV and he's moving his lips, he's probably talking his book. When someone comes on and says that some plunging stock is a buy, do you think, hmm, that sounds like an opportunity? No. Instead, you should wonder, he must be really stuck in that pig. Bottom line, always be able to explain your stock picks to another human being and never take anything on faith in this business. Not from the analyst community and not, well, let's just say from the money managers who love to come on TV and talk their book. Jimmy in Delaware. Jimmy. Hey, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well. How about you, sir? I'm doing great. My name is also Jimmy. <laughs> well, Micah. so I had a question regarding um, whether it's better for somebody who's getting into stocks to whether they should go in with general knowledge or they should take the time and learn more because I'm currently 19 and I have a lot of money in like cryptocurrencies and I've been making money there and I want to diver- diversify my investment, but I don't know much about stocks. And so would you suggest that me buying general companies that I know about is a good thing or a bad thing or whether I should okay. take the time and learn I think a it's lot. a great question, Jimmy. It depends on whether uh, I like to have the first investments be index funds. And particularly if you don't have time to do the uh, homework, which I've described a lot as I listen to the conference call, reading through the documents, seeing some analyst research, then I really think you should be in, in, in an index fund. It's no surrender, okay? And if you build up that stake and you're still interested in buying stocks and wanting to do a little homework, then I think it's okay. But to not have uh, a lot of knowledge and buy a stock, I think that's a recipe for defeat. Can I go to Denise in Minnesota, please? Denise. Hey, Jim, booyah, and thanks for all of your hard work for us. Oh, thank you. Say, Jim, um, can you explain Dutch auctions and why a company has them and what a shareholder... Um, should do about them. Well, that's a company trying to show you basically that they think the stock's worth more than it is and they're buying the stock up high. And typically what you want to do is you want to tender to it. You're not going to be able to get all of your stock done. You'll get the rest of the stock back, but it's a nice way to make a little money. And I think companies that do it are showing that they have tremendous belief in themselves. And the last one that I really loved was the old Jordan. Martin Franklin did a Dutch tender. It was really good for everybody, right? Always be able to explain your stock picks to another human being and never take anything faith in this business. More of my rules of engagement and your tweets after the break. So stick with Kramer. No matter how smart you are, no matter how well informed, no matter how lucky, sooner or later you're going to make some suboptimal stock picks picks. It happens to the best of us. Every portfolio has a few duds in it. The true difference between a good investor and a bad investor is how you handle your losers. People seem to have a natural aversion to selling your losers. Professionals and amateurs alike hate doing it. They keep hoping, operating under the assumption that a sinking stock is wrong in its direction. They rationalize that the weakness or lack of interest they see will be fleeting and that people soon will recognize the value of their stock, the one that's in question. That's all well and good until you need money. Maybe you want to raise some cash because your portfolio's gotten a little too stock heavy. Maybe you have some real-life expenses that require you to put together a lot of money in a hurry. Maybe you're a money manager with some investors want their money back. That's always tough, right? Go, you ever read Confessions of a Street Addict? Holy cow. I got a whole chapter about that one. Well then, how do you decide what to sell? This is where the tendency to hold on to our losers shows its sinister side. A lot of investors would prefer to sell their best-performing holdings rather than their worst performers. Yep, they will sell their winners to subsidize the losers! You then get a self-fulfilling spiral as the bad stocks stay bad. They usually keep going down, and with fewer winners, your performance will get even worse. This is particularly dangerous... For right. hedge fund manager, because bad performance triggers yet more redemptions from your clients, and if you keep if you keep selling winners to give the money back, it creates a vicious cycle down. Individuals do the same thing. You only have to, a finite amount of capital to invest, right? Rather than take your medicine, the loss, the, you know in other words, take a loss. Far too many people prefer to hang on to their worst performers. Thus, my rule: never subsidize losers with winners. My advice to anyone who is stuck in the position is quite simple. Sell the losers and wait a day. If you really want them back, go buy them back the next day. But once they're out of your portfolio, i got to tell you, I doubt that you'll even be tempted to buy back that stock. By the same token, you can't keep hanging on to a low-quality stock just because you're hoping for a takeover. Oh, that's a real good idea. Look, I get it. Nothing's more exciting than a takeover. Nothing's as lucrative. You can put on a lifetime's worth of gains in a day from a takeover. So people go to great lengths to try to capture these moves. That includes buying a lot of bad companies and hoping that they catch a bid. Funny thing about bad companies, they really do get bids. In reality, typically what gets acquired are great companies with cheap stocks, not crummy companies with stocks that seem cheap but are, in fact, pretty expensive. Yet so many people buy this junk merchandise because they think a takeover will save them, which brings me to my next rule. Never speculate on takeovers of companies with bad fundamentals. The odds are that you'll end up owning something that you could go down much more than you ever thought even as it is very limited upside. Even if a a bad company gets a takeover, it might end up coming at a much lower price than what you initially paid for the stock. That's the thing about bad companies. Their stocks tend to go lower, deservedly. You can do much better buying a well-run company that's in good shape, uh, and can still get a takeover bid than you can for buying a company that's doing poorly and thus unlikely to get a bid. It makes sense. Not many bad companies get acquired because not many managers can turn bad companies into good ones. So don't wait around with a company with lousy fundamentals to be taken over. You could be waiting a very long time. If you just moved on, you could have bought the stock of a high-quality company that's likely to give you much better performance. In a well run company, you can get away with speculating on a takeover because even if there's no deal, you have other ways to win. And when the stock of a good company goes down, you can confidently buy more into weakness. That's not something you can do with a company that's gone from bad to worse while you are waiting irrationally for lightning to strike. The bottom line, never sell your winners to subsidize your losers. If you need to raise money... For whatever reason, just take the darn loss and sell something that's underperforming. And absolutely do not speculate on takeovers in companies that have deteriorating fundamentals. If a possible takeover is the only reason you have for liking the stock, that's not something you should own. Stick with Kramer. This is the most interactive show on television. I like to brag about having the smartest audience there is. That's you, America. Let's get to some of your tweets. First up, a tweet from at Bull Flags. Watching Iron Man with Son forgot at Jim Kramer lives in the hashtag Marvel Universe. That tweet's awesome. Oh, yeah, that was just fun. I mean, I broke that cup. It was one take. It was really kind of crazy. And uh, I am forever indebted to the fabulous people, including John Favreau, that do those movies. And here's a tweet from Big Dude Making Big Mo Vess. Says at Jim Kramer. I'm a new investor, less than three months in. I've always been a great saver. But how do I develop discipline as an investor? All right, here's what you want to do. As an investor, why don't you just buy small? Okay, this is what we do for com for the club. And then if the stock comes in, you've got more room. But I want you to do it so that you don't, uh, the discipline is going to make it so that you're not going to be able to necessarily Make as much money as you'd like, but we're trying to cut off our losses, and that's why we start small. Okay, now a tweet from at dairy Darry77426- seven seven four two six. 739, what is that, like your pin number something? Um, Jim Kramer, do you ever sleep? I see you on TV early in the morning and very late at night, and the answer is I rarely do sleep, and I have pulled a huge number of all-nighters within the last three years. I wish that weren't the case, but it is true. And now a tweet from at Inf- Infinite nullity. At Jim Cramer, very much looking forward to some perspective tonight. Is there such a thing as market inertia? With the amount of money moving in the market, is this like steering the Titanic versus a jet ski mad tweets built from GFX? No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. We don't have that much money coming in. I mean, literally, the money's been going out. So the fact that the market's been going up is really just a testament to the fact that there's this core group of people who are not leaving. They're being just like Warren Buffett. They're putting a huge amount of money in index funds. And that's okay. That's not inertia. That's believing in America and believing in progress. I have no problem with it. Now, a tweet from at Mike Monroe and W at Jim Cramer. Thank you for being the voice of reason and keeping our sanity amongst all this market craziness. Don't know what we do without you. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Hashtag Jim Kramer, Hashtag Mad Money. Hashtag Cramer. Well, thank you. Look, my goal is to make it so people don't freak out. All right. There were times when I would tell you, listen, you do have to go. And those have happened when there's systemic risk, meaning risks where you can't assess whether the system's going to hold. But most of the risks we see are really just market risks that are not in sync with how the strength of the country and the strength of the companies. So I will warn you if I think that things are really coming unglued. But otherwise, my job is to try to put it in perspective. Thank you so much. That's a very nice uh, tweet. They're all nice. Next, we have a tweet from at common stock. OMG! Jim Cramer was part of Jeopardy! question. I would have totally got that answer right. My daughter, my youngest daughter just loved that, too. I mean, she's, ah, dad. Dad's made it. Uh, And now she knows I have a show. Thanks, Cramerica. We really do have fun. Stick with me. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise to find it just for you. Right here on Mad Money, I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you next time.